0: Trust me, I'm like a smart person.
1: Hello and welcome to Trust Me, I'm an Expert. This week we're doing something different. Instead of a couple of stories arranged around a theme, we're focusing in depth on a single extraordinary story about trauma and push-ups. When crisis hits, you go back to the basics. Food, family, shelter. But what happens if the crisis keeps happening, maybe for years? Sooner or later, people need more than the basics. We need hope, health and happiness, even when our lives have turned upside down. Last year, two Australian researchers flew out to southern Turkey, where about one in four people are Syrian refugees. Their goal was to explore how exercise might help improve refugees' mental health. While they were there, they recorded their conversations and their classes. And recently, they spoke to The Conversation intern, Sybilla Gross, about their research. This episode is about their story. But one last thing before we get to them. The Conversation is a not-for-profit. And if you value what we do, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Our annual donations campaign is coming up, and you can learn more at donations.theconversation.com. Every gift, no matter the size, makes a difference and helps us deliver independent, trustworthy news and analysis. That's it from me. Sibylla Gross has this story.
0: Can I tell you something? Oh,
2: please, <laughs> please.
0: I know these exercises can help people with maybe the doctors or the medicine to support people who has depression. That's Raya Al-Sayed. She's a fitness instructor working at fitness art a gym located in Gaziantep, in southern Turkey.
2: You mentioned that you dance your way out of depression a few times. Um, and do you have that in mind, trying to help other people to find that same comfort in, in dance and movement?
0: Of course, yes. And I, it was my pleasure was to make people feeling happy, feeling confident of their selves, of their bodies. You know, when you have depression, you lose your confidence. So, and you you don't have that power, and you're feeling you are so down. Yet. Music and uh, somebody who supports you and uh, make you follow him in exercise make you better because he make you he push you to life again. Raya is talking to Dr. Simon Rosenbaum, a senior research fellow in the School of Psychiatry at UNSW. Gaziantep, where she lives, is a city where about one in four of the population are Syrian refugees. As a Syrian refugee who's experienced depression, Raya knows that mental health can benefit from exercise. A growing body of research is also drawing a link between mental and physical health, and it's a much stronger link than you might think Scientists like Dr Rosenbaum and his colleague Ruth Wells, a PhD candidate at Sydney University and research fellow at the School of Psychiatry at UNSW, have been researching this and they flew to Gaziantep late last year to find out more about the mental health of Syrian refugees. I spoke to them about the existing methods of treatment for refugees with PTSD and other conditions and how exercise can help people anywhere who are trying to improve their mental health. What does exercise actually do to the brain to help people with PTSD and other mental health problems?
2: The the short answer is we don't know. Um, So we know that exercise has a role to play in reducing symptoms, so helping people to feel better. We also know that people with PTSD and other mental disorders have really high rates of physical illness, so things like diabetes and heart disease. And we know, obviously, that exercise has a big role to play in reducing the prevalence of those. So it's kind of this dual impact that it that it can have. There is some early research around the impact that it has on the brain in, in certain regions, like the hippocampus, for example, which is a small part of the brain to do with emotions and emotional regulation. Um, but if we sort of step back and think more simply, there's you know the idea that if you're experiencing a mental illness, often... You know, you're struggling with motivation, you're struggling to do simple things, having some structure in your life and having some routine and some social interaction, a reason to get out of bed, that can also have a huge impact on how we feel. So it's kind of a combination of those um, biological mechanisms, but also the, the psychological
0: as well. So in Australia, what are the current treatment programs like for people who suffer from PTSD? What do we know works?
3: If we're looking at in like a high-income setting like Australia, it will often be cognitive behaviour therapy. So the idea is that you know when someone experiences a traumatic event, um, it has an impact on the like whole emotional system. You know, if we're talking about their brain, an overactivation of the amygdala and the fear network. This overactivation gets paired with the experience. So it might be things that are related to that experience, like um, things that remind them and trigger people to feel like they're experiencing that event again. So the idea of treatment is to help break that relationship. So you might um, tell your story again in great detail over time to your therapist. And um, what you're doing is taking those things that you associated with the traumatic event, that were associated with fear and terror, and associating them instead with safety.
0: And so how would exercise be incorporated into that sort of program?
3: So
2: there's different ways of doing it. In a low income, low resource setting, it's obviously very difficult to do that. So we need novel ways of of coming up, um, novel strategies to actually try and um, take what we know works in terms of getting people moving, but apply it to those settings.
0: That was my next question, actually. How how do you overcome the motivation problem because it's hard enough as it is yeah. for people without PTSD? Can you maybe give me an example of a really effective way of getting people off the couch, so to speak?
2: It's a really good point. I guess it's individual. So we know that one of the biggest predictors of whether people will actually... Um, commence and maintain an exercise program is this idea of autonomous motivation which means that they're they're engaging in the activity because they value it and they see the benefit for themselves not just because their doctor or the health professional has told them to do it. but that involves re you know challenging the way we think about exercise and activity instead of being you know almost a privilege of, of the well-off or you know a privilege if people can afford it that it's actually a fundamental right um, and all the evidence tells us that if we can actually, take people who are doing nothing and getting them to do something, as opposed to the people who are already doing a little bit and maybe trying to do a bit more, we're actually going to get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of public health benefits. Um, and that includes costs and benefits to society, etc.
3: I guess it's interesting what Simon said, you know, we need to rethink what we mean by physical activity or exercise. And that's also why a needs assessment in the context is so important. So for example, in this women's gym that um, we're looking to support, um, you know, what a lot of women said to us is we love dancing. So why don't we just make, it doesn't It doesn't matter what people are doing as long as they're getting up and moving. And then if you're dancing, you're also having a good time. Um, and everyone loves doing it and it's a really fun activity to do together. What did you say, sorry? Sorry,
2: I just said most people.
3: (laughs) I shouldn't assume that everyone loves dancing. Maybe some people don't like dancing, which is, maybe they like other kinds of movement. You've got to find out the right movement for the right person.
0: This was particularly relevant for the Syrian refugees with whom Simon and Ruth worked late last year. According to them... Introducing simple and varied types of physical activity was key to higher levels of participation.
2: Some of the interesting things that we we learned while we were there was that there's actually a lot of access to public exercise equipment in parks. Um, but interestingly, they were saying that the the Syrians don't use that. The Syrian children, they're just not. It's not something that's part of the culture. Whereas apparently the Turkish kids do so that was an interesting thing to try and then unpack well why is that and and what could is that an opportunity for us to try and um, have an impact there the other thing that we specifically used was was elastic bands so to as a form of resistance training and these elastic bands are cheap we were able to buy them there and we've got some really, you know, brilliant photos where of us with some of the Syrian women doing bicep curls in, in the <laughs> yeah. training room.
3: I that was one of my favourite things about the whole excursion was, you know, Simon had been saying to me a lot, you know, anyone can use these therabands, anyone can do this. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're older and less mobile, you can just sit in the chair and use it. And so we had a room full of people and lots of um, like young people as well who were really keen to get involved. And Simon picked this um, woman. Woman who was sitting on the side who was older than everyone else. She, she was the most senior person in the room and he you know asked her if she was if she wanted to participate So she came up and she started doing all these bicep curls and it was just so much fun she because it. she was just she loved it <laughs> and like and then it made it it really equalized it and it made it feel like anyone can do it we can all do it together and have a good time. Okay
2: and all we're gonna do we're gonna do push-ups,
3: That's Simon in Gaziantep.
0: He's teaching some of the female Syrian refugees how to properly do a push-up.
2: So what we do, arms up. up. Below your shoulders. (laughs) We come in and we keep the body from the shoulder to the foot in a straight line.
3: If it's
2: too
3: hard, walk your legs in. And
2: then we lower the body and push. Ten times. That sort of exercise, so resistance-based training or strength training, which where you're moving the muscles, has a direct impact on on anxiety and also depression and and symptoms associated with mental illness in addition to having a really good effect on physical health and it's now part of evidence-based treatment for diabetes for example so that's a really simple strategy that we used, where we could directly you know help to upskill the local people there so that they felt comfortable in actually using that as a as a form of uh, as an option to try and help people We're about 50 kilometres from the border, and yeah. this has been one of the places of, of first asylum for a lot of the Syrians in northern Syria.
3: Yeah. So especially people... We're very close to Aleppo, um, and so a lot of people coming across the border from um, what happened in Aleppo last year and continuously over the last six years.
2: So in 2016? Yeah. There's been a lot of things that have struck me, about things that I hadn't thought about um, before coming here. So, for example... Meeting people, you know, roughly my age, that have been through university. And for example, one guy who was a lawyer in Syria, mm. um, but now his qualification obviously is not recognised anywhere, and he can't work there. So his livelihood has just been completely destroyed. Um, and I know in the last hotel we were at, you know, we met two Syrians who were, were cleaning the floor um, and making the, making the rooms up. And one was a chemistry teacher,
3: and one was an um, engineer. Engineer, yeah. yeah. And so like that's. And they spoke three languages. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So just going back a little here, tell me why the both of you actually went to Turkey.
3: So I was interested in working with psychologists who were Syrian refugees. And so, yeah, they were really excited about expanding the model out from just people are refugees. They've most likely experienced trauma. And people often think, well, that means that they need treatment for PTSD, but actually only a very small percentage of the population, of any population that gets exposed to trauma, actually gets PTSD. And for, for people who are displaced, most of the problems they have to live with are these day-to-day things like, how do I get food? How do I have secure housing? I don't have access to work and I don't have basic human rights. Um, so we need to think much more broadly
2: my work has been focused on mainly veterans and also emergency service workers and and how we can use exercise in that population and i happened to share an office with ruth and we met sort of in the office and then i think ruth has this you know infectious energy and we just kind of got talking and one thing led to another and we just got excited about this idea of translating the research that we have in, in emergency service, service workers and veterans to refugee or displaced populations. So, it I think it started over a a pancake or an omelet or something. Um, <laughs> it
0: was a club,
3: I think. Over uh, over yeah. It was crazy. I was like, what are you talking through about? Ah, like, oh, great.
2: But um, yeah, and then the idea, the opportunity came up through Ruth's networks, and obviously Ruth has the the knowledge and experience in dealing with that you know in working with that specific group. And I brought the exercise background, and so together it, it made for a good a good team. All right, Ruth, uh,
3: it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, tell us where we are and what we're doing. Uh, we're just about to walk into a coffee shop, and this is one of the many shops in Gaziantep, which is, uh, it seems to be like dual Turkish and Syrian run. So there's a text in like English, Arabic and Turkish because there's so many, um, so many Syrians living in this city that there's kind of, Dual economy running.
2: I've been confused with language, so you've been telling me how to say hello and thank you in Arabic and Turkish, and I keep getting confused about knowing when to use what and what yeah. is what. So there's clearly there's a um, yeah, there's a multicultural element to what's yeah. happening here. It's very diverse. And we did a bit of training yesterday for the local health workers and today we've got a practical workshop yeah. where we're going to take them through a bit of stuff around how to exercise and what strength training is and also some psychological interventions.
3: Yeah, well, I guess we're going to talk about, because they're mostly psychologists and health workers, so how can they make um, exercise part of their clinical care as a standard part but also how can they introduce exercise within a psychological framework to help get people started so they can increase their self-efficacy and get involved.
2: Correct. Yeah. Let's get a coffee.
0: What were the treatment programs like over there? Because obviously the context is in you know, a refugee camp is very different from you know the treatment facilities we have here in Australia. What did the programs like? actually look like over there?
3: I think um, it's highly varied. So most people um, living in you know, Jordan, Lebanon or Turkey don't live in camps. They live in the urban centers or in makeshift settlement areas that they've set up themselves. In the camps, it's all organized and set up. There are committees that run each section of the camp and then there are services. So you could go and see um, a psychologist or a doctor or go to school. You know, we did a review looking at um, the psychosocial needs that were reported by Syrians living in Jordan um, up until 2014, Um, and a lot of people reported that actually, even though a lot of us associate being in a camp with, um, you know, being in a really terrible situation, a lot of people when they compared being in the camp in the city said, in the camp you have much better access. To services. So there's a few different organizations, you know, there are some grassroots local, you know, Syrian and Jordanian run organizations and then there are the larger organizations like International Rescue Committee and Doctors Without Borders and so on. But the issue is that people in the community don't really know about them because mental health as we know it in Australia is not something that was on people's radar in Syria. Before the war, there was like one psychiatrist per 100,000 people in Syria. It's just not a service that people are used to accessing. So a lot of what organizations were doing was raising awareness about mental health, making contact with the community, presenting themselves, letting people know about you know, what people could access. It's basically like all of the services that you would see in Australia needed, but set up really rapidly and unevenly in a massive population.
0: How amenable was the community to taking up the services that you guys provided?
3: It's really varied. It really depends on who people are. What was really interesting is the gender difference in how services were taken up. For men, the idea of going and asking for help, so if you don't have work and you need to ask people for assistance, that's considered really, really shameful. But for women, it's, it's all right to go and ask people for help. So a lot of families would send women to go and get aid initially. And so then the women started accessing the services, bringing in children and a lot of you know group programs that were really focused around trying to um, empower women. But at the same time, men didn't really have access to those kinds of services. So, you know, on the one hand, it's great that there are so many women who are having more opportunities. But on the other hand, there's a bit of an uneven situation. If men don't have access to help, then that's going to be a problem for women anyway.
2: Um, One of the things about sport and exercise is, um, you know, seeking treatment for mental health issues is still highly stigmatised. And if you've got, let's say, particularly hypermasculine cultures, so emergency service workers, veterans, they may not want to turn up to talk to a psychologist. People are pretty happy to turn up to exercise, you know, to, to lift some weights or play some soccer. And you can actually use that to engage people in more traditional mental health services. And we've seen this you know, through a lot of our work in not just PTSD but also in young men with with psychosis where we looked at a community exercise program and we could actually get people turning up um, more so than they would to turn up to see the psychiatrist or the psychologist. And that provides another avenue to care and it's a really sort of exciting opportunity that we can sort of almost changed the way we think about mental health services, and the same thing applies here in this population. Soccer is such an important part, and we have done some work in other settings, such as Uganda, where again, just soccer was such a big part of, of the community.
0: So exercise is clearly a good thing. How would an exercise success story like the one you've just told me have an effect on an individual or the community in more of a crisis zone
3: setting. So often in crisis settings, people rush in and say, okay, we need to treat people with PTSD, or we need to treat people with communicable diseases and infections. When we conducted a review of what Syrians said about what they needed in terms of psychosocial issues in Jordan, um, if you think of it as a pyramid and on the bottom slice, where most of what people are reporting, it's around their everyday needs. So housing, accommodation, access to rights, um, personal safety and so on. That's what takes up people's day-to-day issues. But then when we move up to the next level, we've got psychosocial issues like boredom and frustration because you don't have a job anymore or not having access to education. Here's Ruth again, speaking from Gaziantep. One of the, when I was interviewing people in Jordan, some of the metaphors that people spoke about were about the crisis kind of being like this spring of water that's just kind of bursting out all, this, all these challenges and difficulties and that people feel like they're, they're a container that's just becoming full and full until they're full up to their eyeballs and they feel like they're going to explode. those daily stresses, plus the impact of having experienced trauma and how all of those things can can come together and lead to problems in the family and violence in the community. What actually can then lead on to more serious mental health problems is the interaction of these things. So if we're thinking about where we want to intervene, we want to intervene at that as obviously we want to intervene at the, psych, um, the basic needs level, but as like psychologists and researchers, we can intervene at that next level, the psychosocial level, so we can start to stop some of those cycles that can lead to more serious problems.
2: And it's also, we've got an emerging body of, of evidence showing us that physical activity and maintaining physical fitness can actually prevent Um, future episodes of of mental illness so it's a really exciting um, sort of time around that showing that it's not just it it doesn't just help us feel better but it might actually help to maintain and protect our mental health going forward.
0: Well prevention is best cure. It's interesting a lot of what you say about people's everyday issues like boredom and frustration those are really translatable to most socio-cultural environments and from what you're saying if we can tackle some of the more preliminary social issues like boredom and frustration with exercise programs, we can avoid more serious and endemic health problems, both mental and physical, in the future?
2: Yeah. One thing, I mean, I'll let you talk about your experience in terms of the the mental health issues, but one thing that I would just talk about is the issues around non-communicable diseases. And so what we're talking about there is things like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, that we know go hand-in-hand hand with things like PTSD. Um, And there's a big issue at the moment. We've got this sort of siloing of treatments where, and the same thing existed over there, where they had what they referred to as the psychosocial workers who who were there to try and reduce the impact of the mental health issues. And then they had the physical health workers. The one intervention can have an impact on, on both the physical and mental health. And I think more and more we're seeing the recognition of the link between mental illness and poor physical health.
3: You know, if we look at um, the issue of like NCDs, so non-communicable diseases, chronic diseases like heart is, heart disease and so on. In countries like um, Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Turkey, we've actually seen a massive increase in those diseases. Heart disease is actually the leading cause of death in all of those countries, only in Syria it isn't because of all the casualties due to the war. Um, and that's actually a massive health problem. Um, but if you think about the situation in Syria where hospitals and health infrastructure have been deliberately targeted and destroyed, you know, you've got this compounding of, of problems. Um, and we know that exercise and lifestyle, diet and so on, are going to have a massive impact on people's long-term health. One thing that I've
2: struggled with a few times since we started this work was the idea of like a hierarchy of needs and thinking like, you know, these people are in a tough situation is this a bit of a ridiculous idea being like, hey, why not try some exercise? But actually the more I think about it and the more I saw and the more we were exposed to it, the more I'm confident that it's not because of the other benefits that it can actually offer. And that's where I think thinking about exercise in the sort of Western idea of it is what we bring to it. It's actually a lot broader than that. And the potential impacts on the community as a whole and on other aspects of, of people's lives, it can actually be a really powerful tool.
0: These are the very challenges faced by Rania, who owns the gym where Raya works, who we heard from earlier. And the biggest challenge is actually retaining the memberships.
1: People feel that um,
2: there's nothing useful from doing anything, and this is yeah, about the community of Syrian here. People now losing hope that even if we do anything, the situation will be the same. This is why people not, uh, if they come for, uh, for one month,
1: maybe they will not continue for the second.
0: But even against such a crippling backdrop of hopelessness for many of the refugees, some have picked up on more unexpected advantages of the gym.
2: Yeah, one of our uh, participants asked if we have. She wants to, uh, a wife to, for her uh, brother. <laughs> yeah. So she asked if you if you have if there is any girl came to here and you find it beautiful. Uh, she has a, a university graduated. We need a wife. Uh, this is a <laughs> Syrian tradition. And did it work? Did it yeah. work for them? I don't know because I don't care about this this kind of uh, still looking. Yeah, but still the number is uh, very long. Mm. And
0: not uh, about
2: twenty uh, in
0: months. Twenty people a month. Yeah, But and our target that's 80%, eighty person, okay. women and girls. So, what does the future look like for mental health in refugee communities? What should we be planning for?
3: We need to think about the long term, and we need to think about prevention because you know the average time that people wait for refugee determination is like twenty years. What we're talking about is a right to health in general, so not just your mental health but also your physical health, the two go hand in hand um, and we need to be thinking about large scale interventions that are going to actually reduce that burden on the health system in the future and give people better quality of life as they continue their lives because just because they've been displaced doesn't mean that they shouldn't have access to the same kind of health and full body health that everyone else does.
2: The next steps for us is around trying to secure funding to try and make this work continue, so Ruth mentioned the gym that we've um, identified over there, we've been working with the people there, and by gym we mean it's like a room, almost the size of the room we're sitting in here, so it's not very big, um, and really we're trying to look at how we can set up a sustainable program, which as Ruth said doesn't just involve us dropping in and and and, and then leaving, it's about empowering the local community and build, giving them the capability and the, the skills to be able to maintain a program over the long term
3: there's heaps of hope because, as Simon said, there's so much energy and resilience and innovation and cool ideas and cool people. So that gives us heaps of hope. Yeah,
2: for sure.
0: The work Ruth and Simon have been doing in Gaziantep has come out of years of collaboration with people like Rania Saeed Youssef and Raya Al-Sayed, who we heard from in the podcast. So a special thanks goes out to them, as well as Omar Saeed Youssef, Dr. Amar Bitar and the organisation Syria Bright Future. If you're interested in more information about the gym that Simon and Ruth are working with, you can find their contact details on our website at theconversation.com. We've also got some great photos from Ruth and Simon's trip, including the bicep curl ladies, so feel free to check those out too. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Trust me, I'm an expert is a podcast from The Conversation where we bring you stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Ruth Wells and Dr. Simon Rosenbaum. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used other music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com.